0: You're
2: listening to the voice behind Women's Cricket Chat, that's Georgie and Alex, coming up on today's podcast.
1: Hello and welcome back to Women's Cricket Chat with me, Georgie and Alex and today I'm absolutely delighted, we are joined by the OG MJ, the real MJ and she is the smooth criminal of cricket, we're joined by the wonderful... Former Australian cricketer, now broadcaster extraordinaire, Mel Jones. Mel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and getting up early.
0: Well, I, I almost feel like I now have to moonwalk across the screen with the smooth criminal introduction, but I will hold off on that. Oh, that
1: would be good though, wouldn't
0: it? embarrassment, We're more than anything else.
1: <laughs> if I was clever enough, I'd fit in more Michael Jackson songs, but I, I've always, I'm going to run out soon. So I, I think I'll just have to cut it off there. Sounds good to me. Yeah, there's, there's too much of a good thing. So um, you're coming off the back of obviously a very busy time. We've just had the WBBL, if we're just going to timestamp this one, and then we're coming into, we've got BBL going on, and we were just chatting you are off to India soon. Very exciting stuff. We'll come to all that soon. But we want to talk about you. So just to kick things off, where did it all start for you?
0: Well, oh, where did it start? It's a really good question. I think from the cricket perspective, like just um, very typical... Aussie upbringing so when Christmas holidays come around school holidays you typically you know what we did we went to my grandparents place which is a small country town called Rutherglen in Victoria big backyard six male cousins you just played backyard cricket time the sun came up to it went down and you got called in for dinner kind of thing so we would have these fantastic little competitions Me with a Trinidadian background from my dad's side was always the West Indies. My six-mile cousins were always Australia. I never got to bat. It was, yeah, it was a long, long summer, but I absolutely loved it.
1: Did you have to do that thing? When I played with my older brother, I I never got to bat or bowl. I just fielded, and I felt like I was included in that way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I I definitely got to bowl a lot because um, I think they're a bit fair weather, you know, get a bit hot, get over 40 and they'll just like, nah, I'll just bat sort of thing. So um, it's probably why I started off as a bowler when I first came through Pathways and State Cricket, probably because it's just the amount of overs overs bowled. But yeah, look, it was just fun and you make up your own rules. It was the best part of backyard cricket, you know, yeah. You hit past chrysanthemums, automatic out. You hit Nan's chooks, you're out for the summer. You got the spiky bush on the cover drive. You get it in there, you can keep running because it you know, it'd cut your arms and you're trying to get the ball back and all those sorts of things. Automatic wicket keeper. Uh, Nan's sheets are on the clothesline. You had to run in diagonally like Malcolm Marshall. If it was just socks and jocks, you, you, know, you could come in nice and straight like Michael Holding. So it was all those kinds of things um, that just made summers really, really fun.
2: And it's really interesting that you mentioned previously when you were playing with your siblings and cousins that some of them would be like West Indies, you'd be Australia. This is a question I've asked a few guests who do kind of have like dual nationality. Did you always plan on playing for Australia or did it ever come into your mind that you would play for another country or was it always going to be Australia?
0: Well, funnily enough, when when I was growing up, we didn't even, well, I didn't know there was an Australian women's cricket team. So there was no thought about playing cricket for the Australian women's side I did stupidly think that I was going to play for the Australian men's team because that's all I could see, kind of thing so yeah you, know, you just think well I'm going to be the first girl to, you know kick Alan border out of the middle order kind of thing you know that kind of kind of random fanciful sort of dreamland kind of space but when I was yeah definitely I followed the West Indies you know I look like them there was a point of connection I've mentioned this on a few podcasts you know Melbourne and, and Australia was quite a white country growing up in the 70s and 80s kind of thing. So you sort of gravitate to what you what you look like. Um, and my dad knew a lot of the West Indian guys, so Malcolm Marshall and Joel Garner, so they'd organise tickets when they toured and the likes. So I'd go along and, and watch from from that perspective, and dad loved his cricket. Mum, not a sports person at all, my biggest fan and probably one of the, the main reasons why I sort of got to where I am, but um, never really understood cricket. wasn't, you know, you've know, you got to go for Australia or anything along those lines. So I don't think I realised it was an Australian women's team Probably until I got to, oh, it, I would have been middle high school kind of thing when something sort of you know when I started playing club cricket probably, and even then I didn't even think I'd do that. So
1: yeah, and you say that it was sort of around high school time. So how did it? How did that journey come from just playing in the backyard to then sort of realizing that there was this possibility of you being able to go further with it? Were you pursuing other sports or something at the time, or was it just like right? Actually, yeah, it is there. I'm going to chase it. I don't want to. Yeah, like, um, javelin. I, I played
0: know. all the sports. Yeah, so I was I was in athletics. I did a lot of um, athletics, uh, sort of probably jack of all trades, master of none. I was probably getting shunted a bit more towards heptathlon kind of thing. Um, played basketball. Would try. I tried trampolining. I did gymnastics. I did a whole range of sports. Back to my mum, taking me everywhere, saying after I'd say, "Oh, I'm trying this, mum," and she'd go, "Okay, okay, dear, off we go." But it was. I think it was just a bit of fate. I went to a, a high school that had a geography teacher who loved his cricket. Um and we happened to have a couple of other girls that loved it as well. So he got a team together. As would all sort of transpire, John Hanscom is the dad of Peter Hanscom, who plays who played cricket for Australia. So and um, and I became a sports agent way down the track. Our sports management company actually managed Pete for a while as well. So it was this kind of full loop circle with my geography teacher getting me into cricket and then me helping Pete down the track as well. So he and our PE teacher were fantastic. And so they Got a schoolgirls team together and then they realised when a couple of us you know, were pretty keen, they went out and sourced out some local women's cricket clubs and we went down and played there. So if I didn't go to Elwood High and went to another high school, I could be playing basketball or athletics or something completely different. Not trampolining. I kept missing the trampoline. That was never going to be pretty.
2: And having played all those sports, do you think it kind of helped you become a better cricketer, a better batter? Because it's something we asked Bryony Smiths, because she she played a lot of tennis and badminton and she said it's really helped with her stroke making and stuff like that so i'm just curious to know if playing other sports is beneficial to cricketers
0: 100 percent, not just cricketers any any um sports person i think i, I look at <clears throat> excuse me um Particularly, um, and I mentioned, like I joke about trampolining, but the gymnastic side of things I think helped so much with, with my fielding and just sort of body awareness, being able to, you know, dive and protect your body in different sort of roles and things like that, whether it's in a circle or out a circle kind of stuff. I definitely helped think there. I think for, for basketball, sort of just that tactical and reading play kind of thing. I know it doesn't happen as much in cricket, but you, your mind's just working in a different kind of headspace and peripheral space sort of thing. So I think, yeah, every sport you can pretty much pick up, I think you can make a, a touch point back to the sport that you eventually end up doing. Athletics is great just for, you know, your basic fundamental motor skills of, you know, running, jumping, hopping, skipping, all those sorts of things. So, yeah, so I, I'm a very big person in encouraging, you know, young kids to play as many sports as possible for as long as possible as well, um, just to give them that broad scope.
1: So basically you and Susie Bates together could start the cricketers basketball team. And actually, I was it's really good yeah.
0: I never said I was good at basketball. I just said I played it. So it was you no. Know, it's one step further than most of us. People tell me
1: to play it because I'm
0: tall, and I'm like, mm, well, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I'd go away for our um, university team. I think they just liked having me around, so they'd they'd spread the rumor that at um, university Australian champs that I was the American import, and I'd just sit on the bench because I was never needed because we had a really good basketball team um, until one day when there was an injury, a couple of people fouled out. And the coach is looking at me going, you know, shit, we're gonna have to put her on the court. And within the space of about three minutes, I'd failed twice, traveled, and scored for the opposition. So they went, get off, <laughs> you know. So
1: you know what? As debuts go, it's one to remember, and that slides us nicely yeah. into <laughs> cricket international debut. So it was pretty cool that when you got to make an international debut, obviously, that's incredible being called up for that one. I think I read somewhere that you said you were. Stuffing your face with a prawn cocktail when your name was read out as part of the Australian. Oh, good pod. research. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all love a prawn cocktail, but what was it like to get that call up and then to have to sort of chug down the prawn cocktail? and Chug down it. it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah we, just, um, we just finished a state final. So it was back in the day, Victoria Vistons, New South Wales, which was the arch enemies. And we played, it was state finals had just gone to um one-day cricket, so we used to play two-day cricket finals. So we are at the SCG, which was a highlight in itself kind of thing to be able to play on the G- on the SCG. And then we came in for the end of season, sorry, end of tournament function, which also included then the announcement of the, the Australian women's team. And um, so you're in this beautiful old mem- members' pavilion in the, the bar area, which is sort of tiered, and it's just it's absolutely gorgeous. So I'm just soaking it all in, you know, sitting at the back with mates, as mentioned, chugging into a prawn cocktail, I'm like, these are all right. And I didn't even hear it because I just wasn't even really paying attention. You know, you hear a couple of names, you know, Vic players, and they got back in. And, of course, then it was this, no, you're not, you're trying to, you know, make a fool of me and go up where I hadn't been announced kind of thing. So it was a little bit of argy-bargy with the prawn cocktail with my my teammates going, no, you actually have made it kind of thing. So it was, um, yeah, shocked to say, (laughs) say the least, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, well, then you back that one up with a century On debut, can you remember it? Or because sometimes we speak to people and they say their international debut was kind of just a blur and they sort of have to look back on it to remember what it was like. What was that like for you and then to score a century on debut?
0: Yeah, um, test debut, I I definitely remember. Like, so I'd already played, so it was 97, I got picked. We had a series against Pakistan at home, then we went to the 97 World Cup in India. So I played a series of, of ODI games for Australia already, but to come into a a test series three test series um ashes tour overseas in england so you know we we had to take six weeks off work kind of thing and beg plead and borrow money and leave and do all that sort of stuff but you know i mentioned about you know growing up playing backyard cricket it was it was test cricket that we all sort of grew up on so that was the that was the thing for us you know to to be able to you know that morning pack your your vest with the australian coat of arms on it and pack your baggy green and your whites and know that you're going to get Get tested in all sorts of manners of form kind of thing. Um and I remember we were which is surprising for the Australian team um at the time we were in strife we'd lost three reasonably early wickets Kitely, Clark and Rolton, three handy wickets at that. We um, so talk so, about yeah,
1: name you know, clangers, doing yeah.
0: <laughs> just bang, bang, bang. Uh. Yeah. So you sort of walk out and you're like you never played You played two day cricket. You never played four day cricket. And you're like you're just trying to get your head around as much of it as you can. And I think I'd, I'd love to say it was a green seamer and it was doing a hell of a lot, but it was an absolute road, we were down at Guildford and Surrey. And I, I remember being not out overnight. And it was one of those things where you sort of say to yourself, you only get one chance to make a good first impression. And that was my in my in my head is that you know just don't stuff it up, Jones kind of thing. So it was it was great. Batted with um, Joanne Broadbent for you know a big partnership and sort of got got us back in the game for a bit.
2: And yeah, you just mentioned there about having to take time off to play cricket. We have now moved to professionalisation and obviously it's a shame it wasn't there and around when you were playing. But how pleasing is it for you to kind of see where it was in 97 and to now Mm -hmm. see girls and up and coming cricketers be able to have that opportunity where they they don't necessarily have to worry about having a part time job to go alongside playing cricket?
0: Oh, it's brilliant. Like I, I pinch myself daily pretty much just in what I'm doing for work, what I'm seeing within just the women's sports space more broadly, but specifically for women's cricket. And, you know, people often ask me, would you would you change it? And I, I, I wouldn't because I think for when I look back at that cohort of women that I played with, they've all now got massive touch points in the game because they have an understanding of where these games come from and making sure that people are cognizant of that and recognise that the history. I think is really, really important that we don't forget that. And so you know you've got your Belinda Clark's who worked for Cricket Australia for so for so long, but has now got her own leadership playground company. Lisa Kightly is you know has coached both the Australian women's cricket team and the, and the English women's cricket team. Julie Price is in there. Chris Matthews has just retired, uh, resigned as the um, CEO of the Wacker in Western Australia. So these people that we all sort of played with have stayed within the game and now have, have found um, professional working careers within the game. And I think that's been uh, a real big part of helping that transition period of going from purely amateur to, to full-time professional. So yeah, super, super proud of of the sport and the and the women in and around it that have sort of, you know, left their mark in it as well.
1: And on those kind of tours, obviously tours nowadays are very different to what tours were like when you were going on them. I spoke to Pricey a bit about this before and she said actually they were such good fun sometimes. you almost put up yeah. in like houses with people and you're basically just like staying with your mates. Like, yeah <laughs> Like in a hotel everything done for you. What was that like? Because it sounds actually like really good fun.
0: It was like I just thinking about a few moments, then you know, and it just brings a smile to your face because it was it was almost like everyone has a gap year or, or what have you, or they travel for a, a little bit and you're backpacking. It was like that, but in a professional sporting <laughs> sense kind of thing. So yeah, we the, the island uh, section of that Ashes tour, we got billeted out. So we were we were known as the dog house, Karen Rolton, Lisa Kylie Julia Price and myself because the house had a dog. You know, then there was the cat house and they had a cat and all that sort of stuff. So you just you know and you'd arrive at the airport and it was like you were back at back in high school on a school camp and you're sort of standing there waiting to go you know which family's ours kind of kind of thing it was you know at breakfast time because you didn't you didn't get paid you'd get a per diem but the per diems wouldn't cover all the things that you needed just functionality stuff like laundry and things so at breakfast you'd have breakfast and then you'd take out your little napkin and you put a couple of rolls and a couple of little jam things in and you'd sort of wrap them up a little bit so you could have a bit of lunch on the road so that you could use a bit of your money then for laundry because you know three pound of pair of knickers to wash it it added up pretty quickly and your per diems were absolutely done and dusted I can remember my first actual injury for Australia was on an Indian tour and I went to the physio and I went I think I'm having a heart attack I don't know what's going on what was going on and I realized that I'd strained a, a pec muscle because I was scrubbing my laundry so much that I'd, you know, strained something. <laughs> it was just, it was completely, but it was so much fun. You know, it was planes, trains and automobiles in India, overnight trains. You don't know which. Where- the train's leaving on time or not it was just absolute chaos and bedlam but it was so so much fun and I I actually feel a little bit for the the players these days which is going to sound weird when they're five-star hotel and business class fights but you miss a little bit of those stories that you have with teammates of the randomness of how did we get out of that situation I think
2: I mean that is like crazy to think about like in terms of modern day because obviously like George said you just say in a hotel and everything's basically done for you but I kind of wanted to know throughout your career you've been able to travel to so many amazing places what have been some of the highlights of some of the places you've
0: been to oh that's um that's a long long list that's probably podcast part b you mentioned pricey um julie price best mates and so because by the time we started touring for australia the um the tour would be paid for for itself so you didn't have to worry about most of the time um flights and all that sort of stuff but because we're away pricey and I were like well we've, we've got our flights paid for we're often going after that so there was the on-tour experiences um and i mean we toured india in 1994 with the australian youth team and then followed up in 97 and india was a completely different place like every country is you know everything sort of you know moves on sort of thing but that was that was super super fun going through through india back back in the 90s we had a world cup in south africa in 2005 so spent a bit of time Post that, traveling around, I did a bit of development work in South Africa as well and through, we went sort of took ourselves up through Kenya and, and Zimbabwe. So you sort of, whenever you're there, you reach out and you say to the Women's Cricket associations, look, we're here. If you want us to run a clinic or do anything for you, you know, we'd be more than happy to. So you then start to meet all these people involved in the development of the game in different countries. So that was probably the, yeah, the highlights is being able to just sort of get away from the actual professional side of, of playing the sport and, and people involved in that space and actually getting out and meeting the people that are purely passionate and uh, love the, the game as much as you do from a grassroots level.
1: And those are the highlights sort of off the field. I mean, we could go on for hours with one thing and another, but uh, we'll swipe <laughs> it back into the cricket side thing. What would you say have been the highlight, were the highlights of your playing career? I mean, it's quite hard to pick between sort of World Cups, Ashes and just all of those kind of things. What would you say was the highlight of your
0: playing yeah I, I'd, have, I'd probably have to put it into a couple of little uh, different compartments because I think usually when I say this first one people sort of go you can't be serious because it's it's club cricket but for me like when we when we were playing you'd have a couple of weeks off to go and play for Australia and that was about it you might have one or two camps maybe so you weren't in and around the Australian women's team set up a lot most of the time you spent with with your club side and and state side that's you know so you knew these people intimately you know they're their mates your teammates you knew when they're going through exams you know they're going through breakups everything all those sorts of things and um I remember when I joined EMP as a Maribyrnong Park um, women's cricket club they'd gone through this lull known as the social club they um they didn't win anything they had a great time which is fantastic you gotta balance it all out but it was when we came through and, and won the the flag for Premier Women's Cricket here in Melbourne for the first time in eighteen years. Just the celebration of everyone involved in the club, from you know the scorers to parents to the old girls who've been at the club for, since day dot, and that definitely sticks out in my mind when I when I think about sort of you know, cricketing moments that you know I sort of think that's that's where all the hard work kind of kind of pays off. So you can sort of so that's that's definitely one of them. Yeah, World Cups like Eden Gardens for the ninety seven. World Cup final was just next level. You know, you got, it was debatable about the amount of people there. It sounded like about 130,000 people. The guy who was going for the world record of most amount of women participating in a World Cup final, he said 80. I don't know, probably 70, 70 odd thousand people. But they were all women dressed in the most beautiful coloured saris. Like so visually, it was stunning. Like I can remember standing out in the middle and just looking around and the movement, it was like a a wave of just technicolour kind of thing and of course they all knew exactly where the game was at and thankfully it was New Zealand all playing not India because I think we we would have just lost our marbles then and you could hear you could hear and see the state of the game by just almost watching the crowd getting involved in in our game kind of thing so yeah so that certainly stands out as well
1: did you ever think oh my gosh there's so much color how am I going to be able to see the ball because I often think Uh, that you know when it's when it's the ball in the crowd but actually you you can
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because like played at the G with no one there, and the MCG sort of got greyish seats. So yeah. you know if the white ball gets a bit older, and you're sort of like, ooh, or the the gab is not a great ground. Seeing grandma, there's no one in there because it's sort of got um blue, maroon, and yellow kind of seats. That sort of hot kind of stuff. It was funnily enough, I, I, that never sprung to mind for some reason. I, I know that the, the noise was ridiculous. Like he just couldn't hear the person. You know, if I'm at point, there was at the cover, it was just not a chance of. I'm actually hearing anything. So if Clarkie's yelling at you That's to change not position. All the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, the, the guy busted all the women in, set the record. And then we we're coming home past Eden Gardens about one o'clock in the morning from a function. And there's still thousands of people around the ground. And we're like, what's going on? And he forgot he had to bust them home. So there was still all these poor women trying to figure out how on earth they were going to get home. And I'm sure you've heard this antidote, but it was um, Julian Goswami was at that game. As one of the boundary riders, I'd never really knew that women's cricket existed, and there she is watching watching our final, and then getting inspired to go on and do all her greatness.
1: Yeah, well, she is and has been an incredible member of the women's cricket community, and like even in when I was watching that the the Mitali Raj film uh, was that earlier this year, last year now. God, I don't even know what year it is anymore. It's like <laughs> her role in that, and, yeah. and then I remember watching, and we at her retirement game. At Lord's that final one. Oh, wow, I
0: missed it unfortunately, yeah.
1: I mean, there was it was quite a funny moment when she came out under that massive guard of honor to bat and obviously it was out like next ball and back she went again. So not quite <laughs> the way her started and ended in so but I think it's funny all the same because nothing ever goes to script, does it? But next in your script, obviously when you decided to retire, was that a difficult decision? And did you know what kind of stuff you wanted to go into after you stopped playing?
0: Well, technically, I've never really retired from the Australian team. I got dropped, so, I, you know, you, I'm still you here know if what? they need me, is all well, I'm saying. Or you know well, right? eat
1: some prawn cocktail, or maybe you'll suddenly see your name again.
0: <laughs> That's it. Um, so your 2005 World Cup was my last Aussie game, and then I played state cricket for, for a number of years, and then... You sort of, you sort of know. I, I'd actually retired from playing for Victoria, which is my state club, uh, state side for all my career, and then um, David Boone randomly rang me up and asked if I'd play for Tassie, and they were just starting, starting back there. State side. And it's sort of hard, hard to say no to David Boone. So that's when Julia Price and I went down and played. I played one season down there and then just knew the, the body wasn't holding up the way I would like it to, but also time commitment when you're still working full-time and you're trying to trying to progress a career in something else. Um, so it was sort of that balance of can I give everything that I want to be able to give to state cricket? So it was a reasonably easy decision for me to say, no, that's, that's it for me.
2: And just quickly on that, like you say, you haven't technically – retired from the Australian women's national team but you have retired from state cricket Like, how much are you aware of the kind of legacy you've now left and like how much you are sort of a role model for this newer generation perhaps you are that role model that perhaps you didn't have growing up
0: yeah it's um I think there's a Susie O'Neill who was an Olympic swimmer for, for Australia for many years she was Madame Butterfly she was phenomenal absolutely brilliant swimmer. She always said, you don't get a choice to be a role model. You just get a choice to be a good one or a bad one. And, I, and I, that sort of stayed with me in the sense of just making sure that those those little moments where you see someone at a cricket club or down the street or something along those lines, that just, I think time is, is an important thing. I think it's such a precious thing, but it doesn't take much to take some time out of out of your day just to say hello or to have a conversation with someone. I mean, I know you're got to put boundaries in place for yourself because... It is a precious thing as well. And you've got to make sure that you have enough for, you know, family and friends and, and yourself and doing all those sorts of things. So um, I don't think you're conscious of it too much. Well, we certainly weren't because it wasn't the big sort of element of television and broadcast around when we were playing. You just sort of get in there and do you do. Um, I think it's probably a lot more evident these days for the players now and even for myself being, being in the media that, um, you know, you're, you're everywhere a lot of the time because of because of tv so there is there's um yeah i put a lot of importance on it and relevance to it and i think it's just just important that you know i think first first and foremost you want people to see that you're absolutely enjoying your work and your career and and yeah that there's a there's a pathway i guess for for anyone coming into the game whether it doesn't matter their their background their gender or what have you that um there's a space for them in cricket which is nice
1: yeah and i wanted to touch on that one so obviously you are prominent in the media having been a player as well but how important is it for you as a person of colour that you are there and you are that role model? You know, we say it so often, that see it to be it. But it, the reason yeah. we say it so often is because it's true. And how important is that for you to show, you know, there is that space, like the likes of you and Ebony and Michael Holding, you know, all spoken out really openly about, you know, we've all seen the racism in cricket and how that space is there for people of colour as well. And it's just as important that they can see that too.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and as much as it's, it was pretty tough you know a couple of years ago post the george floyd position and we were sort of in covid times as well so there was melbourne was like melbourne probably had one of the worst lockdown laws going around um at that stage um it was really really quite a tough time because what it does when something like that goes so big and we're just talking about you know protecting your time is that it it hits your energy levels a lot because people always go to those people. You mentioned two to the people that probably had to be the face of it for such a long time in, in Ebbs and Mikey, and that's that's draining and it can it can be actually quite detrimental to, to mental health, to physical health and all those sorts of things. So I think there was a big lesson learned in just trying to protect yourself and, and set boundaries, but you know you have to have those conversations as well to ensure that people aren't feeling, people feel as if they can actually come to you and ask and ask the tough questions, or the awkward question, or those sort of you know those ones where they go, I don't know who else to ask, kind of thing. And I think that's where we all sort of said, you know, this is this is a moment in time. So we've got this opportunity of of speaking to people about our lives within cricket how tough it's been at certain stages where can we improve all those sorts of things and then ideally the more you can have those conversations then it allows you to create hopefully a nice cohort of allies that aren't people of color that can step in as well and I think that's probably the most important thing that it's a it's a shared journey it's not just up to us all the time to do all the talking on behalf of every person of color within the, within the sport of cricket the more that people can actually understand and empathize with that pathway then hopefully it makes it a lot easier as well for, for everybody to to just enjoy it
1: and I guess it's about that education side of it as well you know like you say don't just go to the people of color just to ask them that everyone needs to learn and be able to talk openly about it because that's when you do break down these barriers rather than just someone being almost being like I know that they're going to phone me up at this point you know you even as a woman sometimes you're like I know someone's yeah. going to phone me up because I'm a woman because they're talking about sex yeah. look my phone's ringing I bet you're talking about sexism again and you like, you know, <laughs> can we just talk about the cricket rather than the fact that yeah, a woman? yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: exactly and you know it's it's something that we're we still don't have right, like um, the ICC report come, comes out 12 months ago and it was pretty, um, yeah, I think it was shocking to some, but it's, you know, to people who have been in the game for so long, who, you know, who have seen the game from basically an outsider looking, trying to get in, it, it wasn't shocking. That's just the reality of where the, the sport's currently at kind of thing. So, but what the report does, it just opens up some more eyes and allows people, if they want to step into that space, to, to actually ask, how can we be better? to try and um, start to shift those things. So, you know, moves like having EBS on the board of the ECB now is fantastic because he hears this report, but, you know, the board members having not lived it, l- literally lived it, makes it really hard for them to make it quite quite a tangible thing. Whereas, you know, if you've got someone like EBS there, again, needs to protect time and energy and, um, you know, her own space a bit. But if you've got someone there, it, it then opens up the eyes to the people who are making the decisions, basically, so that you can sort of try and shift things.
2: Yeah I it's something I really do kind of identify with because it's always like I can't not I don't have a conscience of crisis but then like you say it's about asking those awkward questions and I find sometimes that I, I can't identify with a sports scene because there's no one that really looks like me so I find it kind of like hard to mm-hmm. I don't I, I don't know how to describe it but it's just hard sometimes to kind of equate in my mind yeah we're trying to for equality and stuff like that but then when you can't really see it it's hard to envision sort of thing
0: yeah look it's um how do I put this one I th- I th- the amount of times I've had people come up to me and say cricket or Australia or England isn't racist and typically it's coming from from a, a white person you know because that's their lived experience because they're not racist and so that's that's probably the the trickiest one to try and manage and navigate through a little bit is to try and just shift that starting point of the conversation because it's a defensive one to say, well, I'm not racist, so the sport's not racist and I don't want my sport to be racist because I love the sport, so it's not. And so then you have to <laughs> you have to unpack all that first and foremost before you can actually start to get into just, you know, that sort of open con- conversation. So if, if I could say anything to people, particularly people, white people coming in and wanting to speak to people of colour about it, don't start with a defensive, this is how I see it because the conversation pretty much isn't isn't about you to begin with. <laughs> it's about the pe- people of colour within sport. So the, the starting point of the conversation, and this is just my suggestion and where I think it should come from, is how do you find our sport? How, how can we be better within the sport of cricket? And leave it as an open question.
1: With that one, it's like when people say, you know, I'm not sexist, I have a wife and a daughter, and you're like, well, that's not really the way to start it. Um, there's been quite a lot of that in the media in England in the last few days. Um, Certain men making Twitter even more of than it already was, mainly on in football. There's been a lot of that. It's not been a very nice place for women in football this weekend. But, you know, it's just just a small man talking small things. And that's what he felt like he would do with his weekend while other people were enjoying the sport itself. Fabulous. Yeah. So we talked about how you haven't actually technically retired from cricket. So, you know, we're going to see you... (laughs) In, you're actually going to India to play in the test match. Did you know? Um, <laughs> you can, you're, yeah, you, Fieber you're in, you know, opposite ends of the age spectrum, but it doesn't matter. Age is just a number and you're in. But when you did stop playing cricket, you didn't just go straight into commentary, did you? There's been quite a few roles along the way. So can we just have a quick rundown of what happened between the cricket career and commentary and how you then found your way into commentary and what we know you to do now.
0: So my dad, although he worked for Hackney Housing in London for most of his career, had a started off in teaching like his mum did. My mum was a teacher. So I was surrounded by teachers. And I loved, I mentioned before, my PE teacher at high school being so supportive. So in my headspace was I was always going to become a PE teacher. So went through university, did all that, taught for a grand Old time come one year I think it was while I was still playing for Australia at the time left that got, and then realized that what I loved about the teaching sort of side of things was the development of people so once I'd sort of played cricket for Australia I sort of then thought to myself well I actually would really really like to to go on the coaching pathway so that's where I was sort of trying to put my um all my eggs in in one basket kind of thing so I joined Cricket Victoria um, with the hope of then getting through into the high-performance program. I sort of got into game development for many a year. I'm thinking I'm not getting where I needed to be, so transitioned out of that, uh, worked with Red Dust Role Models, which is a health promotion charity that works with uh, remote Indigenous kids, worked with them for a little bit, and then a good mate of mine had her own, set up her own business back in the day that was a sports agency but for female athletes. So started doing like a, a day, two days a week with her, we sort of because we understood the the playing side of things, we just needed a bit of assistance with the commercial side. And it, eventually, what happened was the company that now manages me bought out Majestic Sports and took all the athletes across. And so, I ended up working at Australia's biggest talent sports agency for a number of years. So, sort of um, when I left and did commentary full time, that's where I was working. So, I had to make the decision between continuing on sort of as a. a female version of jerry Maguire, but without the money because there's no money in women's sport at the same nice. time sort of you know balancing that and and going full-time into giving sort of freelance commentary a bit of a shot so that was back in the end of 2017 made the decision to go go full-time into um into commentary
1: so my brain heard majestic and i automatically thought of the wine warehouse and i was like oh, oh. A cool place to work <laughs> and then i was like georgie you're an idiot <laughs> i mean it wouldn't be a bad place to be sponsored by majestic wine we, we... yeah <laughs> yeah let's get them involved but no this is we're sensible humans so how did you find going into commentary when you first started out was it were you thrown to the deep end can you remember your first stint how you felt what was it' like having you know your earpiece your people doing this this that and the other all going on at the same time or did you just think actually I feel pretty good here I found my next thing
0: yeah to be completely honest I can hardly remember the mechanics of the actual day. All I can remember was um, I'd been dropped from the Aussie side. So they were actually up there a, on an Ashes tour and I was working the Surrey Cricket at the time. And it was when Sky Sport and the ECB just started televising women's cricket. So they had, I think in the contract was they had to do one international game per year. And so they needed an Australian voice and someone who knew the players and they knew I was over there. So they came and asked if I wanted to do it. And I just said, no, I said, why why would I want to commentate on a game that I want to be playing in? I thought it would be the worst experience ever. And then of course you go, well, you know, you don't know what you're doing, all those sorts of things come in your head. And then they said, um, and I'd like to say it was me getting out of my comfort zone and you know, you know, challenging myself and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But they said they're going to pay me 300 quid. And I said, you tell me where, when and what to wear. Thank you. So I, I think because I, I just wanted to rub it into the players. All, like collectively, I was earning more for that day than both teams combined kind of thing. So I, I thought 300 quid, this is great. A little bit of spending money, can travel a little bit. And I, I the, the day itself, I, I hated because it was, the game wasn't a great game. Men's or women's cricket, you always not, might not have a great game, but it was it was more the issue around the guys that were commentating on it. Just felt like they just didn't want to be there. It was like a it was a punishment to be you know coming down and doing women's cricket, you know. So all, 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 straight away, this, as soon as you sort of got there, it was just like a just that sort of negative tone all the time. And so then then I went into overdrive, got trying to go over the top, and there was some awful p- pieces of play, and I'm like, oh well, you know. Just- it was just horrendous, you know, just trying to to pump things up all the time. And I can remember finishing it going, oh, well, that's that's it, you know, it's not going to happen again kind of thing. I was hoping to get back in the Australian team, not going to be back over in England. But pretty much, that was, I think it was 2001, I think I did a game a year, whether it was for Sky or for Channel 9, because they were starting to do some women's cricket. So it wasn't until 2009 World Cup in Australia when the ICC took, took over things that they had a dedicated broadcast team. I think we did eight games from um, North Sydney Oval in Sydney, and then that's when there happened to be a few more games. But I was still working full-time. So, like I said, it took, what was that, 2017, 16 years of doing bits and bobs of games here, there, and everywhere before before it was full-time work.
2: And you just mentioned there it took 16 years of hard graft and work to get to where you are now. And you are one of the most recognisable voices of commentary to date now. For those budding commentators, what advice would you give them for those starting
0: out? Oh, that, that's a good, good question because you can go a number, a number of different ways here, isn't it? I think the the beauty of starting out these days is that there is so much cricket content to be covered. So what I would say is don't go too big too early. The, the, the beauty of when I was sort of coming through, I can remember doing a 50-over a game up in – um. Macquarie and Toowoomba. So it was the Australian Men's A team playing India A and South Africa A, and I was the only commentator. So I was doing days of hundred overs by myself, and it was uh, it was horrendous in a way because you're like absolutely burnt by about the twentieth over. But what it allowed you to do because people just knew it was you, they they you know you could just grab anyone for an interview. You um you could sort of just practice things a little bit. It was I think getting yourselves in and and starting it. Base level with whether it's club cricket or you know little live stream games, do all that. Understand the mechanics of commentary and the disciplines of it, and all those sorts of things which you can ask other people about. But just get in there and and get find your own sort of rhythm of of commentary. It allows you to sort of work on you know your light and shade and highs and lows and all that sort of stuff without getting too nervous that you know a million people are going to hear you and absolutely slate you on social media when you get off air, kind of thing. So I would say, yeah, get get your feet dirty with you know, sort of almost the grunge kind of part of, of cricket commentary, don't think you're going to go straight to the top because I think once you get in there, you can get sort of shaped a little bit how other people want you. You've you got to find your own commentary style, I think, um, and you can do that on so many different different ways, whether it's, um, you know, radio or TV or live stream.
2: And I know you've already mentioned as a player you've got to experience so many amazing things and as a commentator as well, what have been some of the best matches in your opinion, that you've commentated on?
0: Oh, yeah. There's been a few <laughs> matches, I can tell you that. Look, to, to be honest, I, I would say probably a couple of the great matches, again, are probably matches that, you know, there might have only been a handful of people watching, whether it was a blast game. I've, I love doing, doing the blast or, you know, WBL game that was in Maui in Victoria kind of thing. So it's more for me, you know, games that certainly spring to mind. I've, I've been fortunate enough to call a lot of the Australian women's cricket teams sort of World Cup moments and they're the most nerve-wracking ever because you know that it's going to be whatever you say is going to be around for as long as people sort of listen to highlights of, of women's cricket kind of thing And you want to do the team and all the players and the support staff justice of all the hard work that goes into creating that that one very very special moment. One one of the ones that stands out for me, though, is um the Ashes Women's Ashes Test at Manuka a couple of years ago. And it was particularly the last hour of play where it was just chaos. Like Meg Lanning as a captain who was so in control of things because it was test match cricket and they hadn't played a lot and just trying to find a way. It was the perfect example of sport finding a solution to an issue on a, on a sporting field that they had never faced before. And so then all of a sudden you've got Annabelle Sutherland coming around the wicket and bumping the England team and you've got Sophia Dunkley, new into the game, you know, trying to hook and pull and do all these sorts of things. And but in the commentary box, we had Isha Gua, who bless her, is still. I feel as if she still feels as if she's the twelfth for the team. Like she loves England, you know, and so she's she's like pulling her hair out, you know, on air. She is professional, and she but she you know off air, she's like ah. And then we had Alex Blackwell next to us, who was nine months pregnant and ready. Edie was about ready to come into this wonderful world and I'm thinking to myself, we could have another moment that I'll be calling something more than just an ashes, win, loss or tie or draw. And you suddenly become a midwife. Oh, God. And it was just, I look back on that and it was just, you know, and that's where you sort of go, this is the the shift in cricket, isn't it? I mean, Richie Benno would never have been in a commentary box with a woman who was about to give birth, you know, you're like, ah, and you're just sitting across going, two legends of the game and Alex Blackwell and Goa now in the commentary box, absolutely nailing the call of this magnificent test match. But with all this other chaos going going on around it, which is a typical female chaos kind of piece with a, with a pregnant woman, it was just, yeah, it was brilliant. That's where you sort of go. This is where you, you love the sport, isn't it? But um, it's it's changed so much.
1: Oh my gosh, what a story that would have been though if she actually did give birth at test well, Thank God she didn't because, I mean, maybe you would have found another career, you know. I'm actually going <laughs> Bye cricket. Midwifery is the call for me now. Mel the midwife. It's lovely. You can keep your call the midwife. To get... <laughs> Instead of call the midwife, we've got midwife on the call. There you go. And obviously that was one of the big highlights for you, but we've seen quite a lot of change in the women's game. Um, what was it like for you to be part of that first WPL this year? And how big was that? in terms of the women's game. You've been around, obviously you saw the start of the WBBL as well. So how much have you seen the game grow and how important was that? And what was it like to be part of? It looked mad.
0: Yeah, it's, um, I, what, what what's the way to describe sort of the, uh, it's organized chaos in a way sometimes when you get to, you know, IPL sort of women's premier league because-
1: I also feel like there's always a lot of cake. That's the kind of image I got. People <laughs> always eating cake and shoving it in people's faces.
0: <laughs> this is it. I think because of the enormity, well, one of the country, people-wise, but just the enormity of cricket within the country and, and the money that they have to be able to really invest. Once they've decided to do it, they're in there. You know, you're walking past buildings on Marine Drive where they've got projections, hologram projections up on the building about, about the Women's Premier League, and you're just looking at it, just going, and there's thousands stopping on the drive to, you know, to look up at it sort of thing. And yet that's that they're the moments where you sort of go, you know, the BCCI in India has the capability of just, and which they have done through the Women's Premier League, fast-forwarding the projection of the sport so quickly. You know, if the Gujarat Giants team sold for more than what the Mumbai Indians men's team sold for in year one of the IPL. So you sort of look at that and you think, okay, this is this is where the game is now going. And it for me, it's um, being involved in a lot of sort of women's sport touch points around the world is that it was you know it's people in america going hang on a minute we thought you know we're angel city and we've got all these magnificent teams spending millions of dollars and there's another sport and it's women's cricket you know and that's where you sort of start to see other other countries and leagues and and uh industry sort of sitting up and taking note that the game has this it was a it was a moment in time it has shifted quite a quite a way forward and i don't think we'll probably see it a lot i mean we're Think about it in terms of the players and contracts on the field. But for me, it's it's more than that. It's 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 about the, the sporting industry um, and where they invest, you know, the the commercial dollars, uh, the media rights. That piece there is the, is the piece, is the game-changing piece for the Women's Premier League.
1: And I guess we've seen so much women's franchise cricket grow all over the world, like the 100 say what people like about it, what it's done for women's cricket has been amazing. Obviously the WBBL started it all. We've got the CPL and then, you sort of see it filtering down. You know, we've got so many different regional qualifiers now. Um, the likes yeah. of Vanuatu coming through that one. I know you went out and saw some of that. And then there's the Africa one going on at the moment. You know, the likes of Rwanda and what they did at the Under-19 World Cup. So for you, having been part of the women's game for so long, what's it like to see countries like that coming up through the ranks and getting their chance to show what they can do too?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably, for me, the most exciting um phase and and not just exciting but the most important as well because everyone who loves sport you watch sport because of the theater but because of the competition and the unknown element of who's going to win now if we have australia england and india just constantly going around a loop playing off in semi-finals and world cups and da you know for those people that follow those teams that's great but even for me as a fan you know an australian supporter is that i just don't want to see that all the time because it I, th- I think it just becomes quite stale you want and this is the beauty I was like enough to go to the FIFA Women's World Cup at, here in Australia and you know to see the USA and the likes of Germany kicked out early yet the competitive nature of the sports and you know people being absolutely enthralled people who didn't like football watching it just going this is amazing that's what you want for cricket and you want that different style of play coming through so there's like I mentioned about the test match, it's that how do you find a way on the field? And that's what that's what you love about sport. So you want to see a style of Rwanda, which I don't even know what their style is. You know, is it a little bit of, you know, the way in which England play, a little bit of the way in India play, you know, but you want to see that come through and you've got the flair of the West Indies or, you know, the, the competitive nature of Australia and all those sorts of things. You want to see as many different styles of um, countries coming through and seeing them on, on the sporting field together. So, yeah, yeah so for me, more countries, um, I would be investing so much more into into those countries, so that we come to a World Cup, and any one of the ten teams, twelve teams, sixteen teams, twenty teams, because you want to keep in- increasing that, can actually win it. That's that's your utopia that we're looking for.
2: And I mean, you talked about the theatre and the dramaticism of cricket. I think we can all agree this summer's Ashes series was, you know, one for the books. Obviously, ended up being a drawn series. England somehow beating Australia in both White ball series, which was, no, I don't think anybody expected that. Like, what were your thoughts on the Ashes summer and just where do you see teams, not just England, but teams in general, perhaps challenging Australia a little bit more?
0: Yeah, magnificent Ashes. I I was fortunate enough to work across both the men's and the women's in that summer. And if I see another couple of months like that ever in my commentary or even just fan-watching, phase, you know, I'd I'd be a very, very happy person. And it's gonna be it's gonna to be tough to sort of beat that that combination. For for the women's, it's it started perfectly because it started with a five day test match. It started with giving curators the opportunity of creating a pitch that would break up and allow spins to come into the game. And and I think that was absolutely fantastic. We saw the pace of filer and, and and the likes. Of the, at the start, spin, you saw some quality batting. So there was a, a nice competition between bat and ball all the way through. So the the Ashes for the Women started superbly well. Crowds as well. I think that kick-started things. Trent Bridge was absolutely brilliant. And then it got into, you know, the, the, it was almost the highlight for me, was watching the different types of crowds at the grounds. So Soldak to the Oval, Lords, and then at Edgebaston, And just not in that order, but Edgebaston. yeah, just the different types of the way in which they were watching. You know, Baston was probably a little bit more your cricket crowd off the back of the Common Games, and they knew what was going on. And so you could sort of feel the tempo of the game. They were in it. Da, da, da. Then you get to, to Lords and and the crowd clapped and Heather Knight won the coin toss. I'm like, who claps a coin toss? <laughs> yeah, but they Because they just didn't know, you know, what the etiquette was, but they just wanted to be nice. So they, they were there. And then the Oval, there was this, this constant murmur because they were inventors. So they're all chat, 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 chatting. And then something would happen and it would be a delayed. What happened? Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah. And off we go. So it was absolutely brilliant just seeing all these different people coming in and experiencing women's cricket. and thoroughly you're leaving the ground walking out with them and they've had a ball they had just the best day and I think a, a lot of that is off the back of the hundred and just sort of creating that sort of new fandom piece and a lot is off what the, the England women's cricket team the Aussie women's cricket team has been able to do on the field as well which they know they've got to entertain and, and be world-class athletes and they're, they're doing that well as well
1: yeah it was Relentless. It was exhausting. I thought you were going to say you'd be happy if you saw that much cricket. I think I I see that much cricket, not even that close. I'm going to have very grey hair very soon or very little hair and no nails because at times it was just exhausting and relentless. And I actually think I can see in the mirror now, I, I do have grey hairs. That I have to sort of hide under my ponytail and I've not hit 30 yet. So pray for me. Pray for me. Anyway, for you, obviously, you were involved in both sides in both um, men's and women's ashes and it is you know you're on the road so much how do you sort of wind down and is it quite hard sometimes you just think oh god I actually I am exhausted sometimes I just want to go home put my slippers on
0: and watch home and away (laughs) I'll just stop you there and say no it definitely would not be home and away (laughs) and not even go to that one (laughs) it is you've sort of got to you got to look ahead a little bit you got to sort of you know if i come over to the sint with sky for 2 months you sort of you got your spreadsheet of games so you need to be able to manage time in between even to the point of really trying to figure out what's the best way of getting to and from games knowing the complexity sometimes it can be in any country but you know for, for england if it's heat wave comes in or there's train strikes or you know am i better trying to drive to manchester which could take six hours which means i'm driving and i don't have prep time so i try the train if the de- train gets delayed but at least if it's delayed i can just sit there and keep doing my prep and just look out the window Who else is driving? Can I get a lift with that person? Do I want to drive back straight after the game at 11 o'clock at night and drive for three hours? Is that a bit dangerous? But then I wake up in my own bed the next morning. So it's all those sorts of things that you're just trying to get your head around just to buy back time, I think, a little bit more. And you've just got to be really strong, and I'm not great at it, in not over-preparing and utilising some of that time. Your prep time should be not just about preparing for the game and players and all that sort of stuff, but it should be about making sure that you're physically capable and well and got a certain level of, of energy to, to, to bring to the game and doing all that sort of stuff as well so blocking off time that is just downtime, whether it's you know that you can go for a walk get a massage do whatever it is that you sort of like doing that gets you into that space
1: and i saw in your i was had a scroll through the instagram as i always like to do on people's before we chat yeah. to them and um you was, i saw a thing once and you were saying you were wearing a hat that said it's okay not to be okay and someone came up to talk to you about that, how important is it to be open about mental health and things that can be a struggle? And especially, you know, when you're expected to be on telly and be this vibrant person talking about sport enthusiastically all the time, how do you manage that? And how important is it to be open about that for you?
0: Yeah, vitally important. And it's an interesting one because we, we we talked about it before in terms of racism in the game and people coming to me all the time to find out, you know, to have the conversations. And you want to have a- a wonderful cohort of allies to be able to protect you a little bit from the time and energy, but to have a broad group of people to be able to speak about it. And so from the mental health perspective, that's, that's my place to be a, a strong ally. I am very, very thankful that personally I've never had any mental health issues. But I, um, I have very close family friends that have um, and I see their, their daily struggles at times and it's, it can be exceptionally tough. And so for me, it's an opportunity to utilise my platform and capabilities to be able to talk about it from a, hopefully, from a, a strong supporter and, you know, someone who, who's there for them to try and, you know, elevate the, the issues, have, have just, you know, respectful conversations about it and sort of break down the stigma in and around it as well. Um, I think that's probably one of the, one of the most important things, but that, that moment when the woman came up, I was on the phone to my mum having a coffee and um, getting, you know, I was in England at the time and she came up and she just typed on her phone, I like what your hat says. So she didn't want me to get off the phone from the conversation with my mum. And I said, hang on a minute, mum. And I quickly spoke to her and she was, she was having a really, really tough day. And you can, having been in and around people who've sort of been in that space, you can sort of sense just how darker place she was in the moment. And um, I mean, we joke about this in Australia with people that know me, you know, I'm not a hugger <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. And I, and I just said to her, I said, look, do you need a hug? And she just said, yes. So the, here we are, two strangers. Gave, we gave each other a hug. Mum's listening to the whole conversation at stage. Mum knows when to, to pipe down. And, and I just said, just you just hang in there. The tide will turn and you'll come out of it. And, and she rode off on a bike and Oh, I'll never see her again, kind of thing. But you sort of know that hopefully, like I said, you know, you're going to try and be an ally and, and step into these situations sometimes.
1: I find that also situations like that, the most important thing is to have the people around you. There's quite a lot of good, fun characters sort of in the commentary boxes here, there and everywhere How much do you enjoy sort of when you get to come over to England and it's like the gangs back together. What's that like? And what's the kind of, what's it like being part of, you know, Sky or you join up with Ali Mitchell, you join up with Isha, you see Ebony and you're like, right, gang's all here. Let's go.
0: Yeah. Oh, look, I've probably mentioned it far too many times, but I do. I I pinch myself daily on the life that I lead and the job that I have and the, and the people around me kind of thing. So to to come over for those couple of months a year with Sky who are a fantastic um, broadcaster to work with is is fantastic because you're catching you're not just catching up with work colleagues you're catching up with you know really good mates and so to do that to have good mates in and around your your work life and not constantly because you know there's last year I ebbs and asha probably saw twice each kind of thing you know barb a quick pass in the in the mini box kind of thing so it can get quite quite manic but you know you know they're close and they're, and they're close by sort of thing it is it is a hoot and yeah i think that's probably one of the biggest challenges is particularly when you're on air with them not to get too familiar and not, you know, not that you'd ever say something that you're going to regret or, you know, what happens on tour stays on tour. I mean, but um, I, I certainly, I'm very mindful of, you know, that people are listening in and it shouldn't just be people listening into our little personal conversations about a game, but that they're very, very close friends. And particularly on, we've just talked about the schedule and how manic it can be. It's no, it's so nice to know that, you know, post a game that you can sit down at dinner and just dump whatever's going on in your life and know that you're in a really safe space and you can yeah recharge that way very quickly for the next day which is nice.
2: Final one for me having witnessed so much great cricket either playing or commentating where do you see or where do you hope that the game the women's game will be in the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, I mentioned a little bit touched on it a bit before. My concern would be about the the gap between probably you know the sort of top 3 4 nations getting bigger and not pulling the other nations along with us. I, I, I'm very strong in my beliefs that as much as, you know, you, you invest in your, your own country to be the very best they can be, it, it, it's no point if you're not playing quality competition all the time. So I'd I, I very I'd be very, very given in, um, in my approach to say let's have a collective collaborative approach to where we want the game, the women's game to go, and I think that means that we need to, to look across and down a little bit more with all the other nations playing and uplift them as much as we possibly can. Well,
1: I think that sort of rounds it all up quite nice. It's been absolutely amazing to have you with us, Mel. Thank you so much. I know you're a very busy human and you've had to listen to us as well for the last hour and a bit. To round it up, it has been an absolute thriller to come back to the Michael Jackson and we really are very grateful for you for coming on. It's been amazing to hear about everything. We love watching you catching up. I sometimes see you in passing in a commentary box. We wave and we go, maybe one day we'll all actually get to sit down in the same yeah. Thank you so much. It's been amazing to hear about everything that got you into cricket, what you do. And I can't wait to see what comes next for the world of women's cricket.
0: Thank you so much, guys. Um, And look, can I flip it around a little bit here? I, this is the best part about my job is, is working with amazing people, but amazing people are doing fantastic work as well. So do you guys just, keep going it's absolutely brilliant to have so many different voices in the game to, who see things differently who report on it differently because that brings more more and more new fans into the game as well so you're doing superb work keep going
2: and to all our listeners if you want to keep up to date with everything that we're doing you can follow us on twitter and tiktok at w cricket chat on instagram at women's cricket chat and if you want to give us a like on facebook we are women's cricket chat If you'd like to give our personal twitters a follow then it's at Heath 27 and I'm at Alex Shane Pereira. This has been Women's Cricket Chat. Tune in next time.